0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Boucher, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, the President's Plan for Student Loan Forgiveness, a New Framework for Economic Engagement in Asia, and what new numbers tell us about the state of inflation. Joining us to discuss all of this, as always, is Douglas Holtzakian. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Cal. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah, you're coming to us from uh, the West Coast this time. Yes, I am on Whidbey Island, uh, northwest of
1: Seattle, and I am on vacation, hence the casual attire.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to talk to us about all this stuff. We appreciate that. But let's jump right into things. And start with student loan forgiveness. Um, the Biden administration recently canceled loans for students of the Corinthian College's chain and is dangling a promise of $10,000 in blanket loan forgiveness, saying the decision is likely to come in late summer on that policy initiative. Um, Doug, you wrote that, and I know you have some strong thoughts on this, but you wrote that blanket student loan forgiveness is absolutely indefensible on the merits. Walk us through your concerns on this. Well, I think first and foremost, it's not fair.
1: There are people who pay back their loans, and uh, now these other loans are being forgiven. Uh, there are other borrowers for the federal government. There's farm loans, there's small business loans. They have to pay their money back. Why treat these uh, loans differently? That, that seems unfair. Then there's the, the whole issue of who gets the benefit. And here, uh, no matter how they dress it up, If you do loan forgiveness, you disproportionately help the affluent because they have the bulk of the student loans. And so Tom Lee at AAF has gone through these numbers extensively. You can change the loan forgiveness by having smaller or larger amounts, 10,000, 25,000, 50,000. The bulk of the benefits go to the affluent or you can change the cutoff, right? Anybody under $150,000 in income gets a loan forgiveness. Those above do not. That doesn't change anything. About 97% of the loans are under those caps, and so no matter how you dress it up, you're going to do something that's not fair. And um, I just really don't understand the administration uh, being the the group that does this because they bleed equity. Everything you ever hear about is let's let's get things fair, get rid of gaps, and and so this seems quite odd for them. As you know, I I don't think it does us any good on education policy. Right? This this is a lot of money, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it will not improve educational outcomes one bit. It won't. Send another person to college. It won't improve the quality of the labor force. We could use that hundreds of billions of dollars much more effectively somewhere else in Pell Grants or, or something. And so I'm not a big fan of that. I also think it sends just a terrible leadership message, right? These are loans that people took. They voluntarily signed contracts. And now we're saying, hey, you don't have to pay attention to that. You don't have to live up to your obligations. You know, presidents have. Uh, the ability to uh, exude a moral character in office and lead the nation. And I think this is a step in the wrong direction. Other than that, I really don't care, Kyle. That's great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I get that sense, Doug. But yeah, I mean, it seems like this has been sort of like this policy that they've been talking about for a long time. Obviously, it's a progressive wish list issue. I mean, Congress doesn't seem like they're going to take it up. So it seems like this is really their only avenue to, to get something done. And it, with the election looming over them, they seem like this is something that they really want.
1: It, yes, there are certainly elements of, of the that, that really want this. There's no question about it. But the president has not done it and has progressively sort of teased that he's going to do it and then doesn't do it. So that, that tells me there's some real reservations within the White House. And doubtless, they have looked at the polling and, and realized that a lot of people think this is not a great idea and it's not an unambiguous winner for them. So they're they're trying to Negotiate that divide between the progressive wing and the rest of the
0: party, mm-hmm. some of the delay on that because of legal issues, and you know, the constitutionality of the President just saying, "You don't need to pay back ten thousand dollars worth of loans. I've never understood how they think they have the authority to do this, but I'm not a constitutional lawyer, and i
1: I'm not steeped in the executives authorities. But a plain reading of what goes on doesn't allow the President to just wipe away a contract that that they've they've signed
0: interesting. All right. Well, let's turn to other matters. Uh, The Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. This is the Biden administration's uh, cornerstone policy for economic engagement in Asia. What do we need to know about this framework?
1: Well, this is an interesting uh, approach to trade relations. Um, This is not something that is done under the authorities granted by Congress with Trade Promotion Authority. And and it's not a treaty, which or or anything that will be ratified by Congress. It's an executive agreement uh, between the president of the United States and and executives in other countries, and it would go away the moment the next executive showed up if they so desired. So, um, sort of temporary uh, at risk. There, um, it's an uh, an area. It's a negotiation between the U.S. and thirteen other countries in the area. So this is a large um, agreement, but it's not like a standard trade agreement in two ways. Number one. It's not a set of provisions that applies to 14 countries, the U.S. and the 13 others. It's a menu uh, off which people can pick to negotiate on a bilateral basis among those 14 countries. So the outcome could be very different relations across the U.S. and and Brunei and the U.S. and Japan. And who who knows what uh, ends up? That's unusual. Um, And it's not a traditional trade agreement because it doesn't reduce tariffs, improve market access and, and enhance the the gains from trade. And that's a lot of things like uh, let's worry about anti-corruption and and tax collections. Let's worry about uh, climate and and infrastructure and clean energy. And and it's so it's kind of a an international agreement to do domestic policy different. And and so it's it's a an strange animal in many ways.
0: Yeah. So the United States also recently announced uh, a separate trade initiative with Taiwan, which was conspicuously absent from the Indo-Pacific agreement. Um, What are your thoughts on this?
1: Uh, Well, this looks like a consolation prize. Taiwan wanted to be included in the in the framework, the IPEF. And it was not. Uh, It was not probably because the other uh, countries in the area did not want to offend China. And so Taiwan gets left out. The U.S. has a, a sort of consolation prize. Does a bilateral agreement that looks a lot like the framework uh with the other countries, um, with really uh two important differences or notable differences, I guess the way to say it. One, um it it definitely takes on non-market economies, which is a, a big issue with China, and it takes on a state-owned enterprises, and, and that's a big issue with China. So agreeing to negotiate over things that that China just wouldn't negotiate with the US is is making Taiwan stand out in this agreement. Tory Smith, who who wrote on this for AAF, points out that. We have lots and lots of bilateral agreements with Taiwan. And how much more we get from this one, I don't know. But um there's an element soup of things going on out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of this seems to be the Biden administration's way to build economic ties with the with China looming overhead of all this.
1: Yeah, China drives all this. This is uh, you know, this is yes, economics, but it's also the geopolitics of uh trying to have relations with those in the region surrounding China and, and really build a, a, a block of countries willing to uh, adhere to American values.
0: Yeah. Let's move on to inflation and the larger economy. Um, just when we thought it couldn't get any worse this week, the national price for a gallon of regular gas rose to an all time high of, I think, like four dollars and fifty five cents. Americans are genuinely concerned as they see prices for all their basic needs remain either bloated or continuing to rise. Uh, Doug, your numbers guy, is inflation actually getting worse? Uh,
1: inflation <laughs> is a genuinely uh, a problem, and and whether it's peaked or not is an open question. Um, we saw the CPI go year over year at 8.5% in April, and it dropped uh, to 8.3, or, or March, sorry, and dropped to 8.3 in April. So that gave some people some hope we're going on the right trajectory, inside that however the, the really big numbers are things like shelter shelter is a third of people's budget uh shelter inflation continues to rise it, it went up another point uh tenth of a percent in in uh, the latest data so uh, a lot of reasons to anticipate tomorrow's new release which will give us the the may data um on the consumer price index and and see whether we're seeing some downturn in some of these key areas whether it's the food, energy, and shelter bundle that's over 50% of the, the budget and is currently going up at a 10% rate, needs some relief on those fronts. Um, but I don't think anyone has any illusions that things like the price of gasoline are going to go down. So m- inflation on gas prices might go to zero, but that means gas prices remain hovering around the $5 mark. And that's, that's a, a, a real big issue for the average American.
0: Yeah, I mean, our colleague, my, my boss Angela, was just talking about this when we were putting the script together. Like she put more money into her car for gas than she's ever done before and has just been talking about it all week. I'm sure you're you uh have heard a little bit about it, but luckily you're you're on vacation, so you might have missed some of the back and forth on that one. No, but I went up to, to
1: uh babysit my granddaughter's and my daughter's one rule request is that I fill up the get ga- the car with gas, right? I mean it's like she's a teenager again. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, this week, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified before Congress. The United States faced, in her words, unacceptable levels of inflation. What are the latest proposals to combat inflation? Is any of them a good idea?
1: There's nothing really that the Congress or the administration can do substantively at this point. I mean, you know, they made big policy errors on the fiscal and monetary front. They got us into this pronounced inflation. The only thing that the the Congress and administration could do would be to, you know, pass a big tax increase, big uh, spending cut, cause a recession, and, and lower the inflationary pressures. Nobody wants them to do that. So they should stay out of this game and let the Federal Reserve do this to the best of their ability by raising interest rates, gradually slowing the economy, and hopefully taking the inflationary pressures out without actually causing a downturn. That's the game plan. So it's a, it's a tough call for the Fed. Um you know that's the economics of it the politics are what surround all this you know how how do you as an administration say to the american people trust us to manage the economy in the face of what looks like transparent mismanagement how do you run for re-election and, and position yourself as the ones who are better on the economy they they're, they're struggling with all of that and um you know where i come from in these circumstances you fire some people and that's what the president should do you should fire some people and so get ready <laughs>
0: We'll have to pay attention to all of that and see how things unfold throughout the midterm elections, I imagine. Um, we'll we'll get more, more on that. But in um, other bad news, on Tuesday, the World Bank slashed this year's global growth forecast by nearly a third to 2.9%, and it warned of the risk of uh, stagflation. Of course, we're going to hear the growing number of uh, experts use the R-word, uh, recession. Do you think all of this... Gloom and doom talk is overblown, or are we in for bigger problems ahead? Uh, two things on that. Really, first,
1: you know, a lot of this really depends on China. Uh, China has big um, pandemic health problems. They don't have an effective vaccine. They've resorted to these extreme uh, quarantines, like Shanghai in its entirety, in order to control the spread of the virus, and and those have big economic consequences that that sort of cut two ways. If China's slowing down, uh, there is some really good news in that it's not demanding a lot of oil, and that's a a big source of uh, problems right now is the high price of of crude globally. Bad news is China's a big economy. If it slows, then it it slows its its demand for things, and the, the global economy slows. If it grows more rapidly, well, that growth forecast looks better, but the inflation forecast looks worse. So China is a, a big part of this. And I think um, we'll, how that plays out will dictate a lot of whether the World Bank's dead on or not. For the US, I think the recession talk is um, way too big and way too soon. This is not, in my view, a 2022 issue. It's, uh, it's Nothing's impossible, but it is the last thing I would expect out of the US economy. It's, this is an economy that is growing too fast, that has been overstimulated, um, and the Fed is going to have to lean against that. That means that some of the reports we get, monthly job creation, retail sales, you know, durable goods orders, the things that we look at to gauge the economy, will actually soften. But that doesn't mean recession, that means slower growth, and that's necessary at this point in time. There is an increased risk of recession out there past the middle of next year, say, but there's no guarantee. And um, I think, given the quality of economic forecasting, we should all have a little modesty about whether there's a recession really coming.
0: Uh, yeah, I know those those zero COVID tolerance policies in China really starting to slow down industrial stuff and right. supply chains and things like that. We've talked about that many times. And then, you know, you hear the stories about oh, companies are thinking about slowing down. I mean, you know, the the Teslas and the and the Jamie Diamonds of the world talking about that, which just add to that to that conversation of the the, the recession talk. The thing that's frustrating about that is everyone's going to slow down because we're going too fast.
1: That's the point. And so the mere act of slowing down is not the same as having a recession. Slowing down is less rapid growth. Negative growth is a recession, and they're very different.
0: All interesting stuff, and we'll have to continue, I'm sure, to talk about it um, in the weeks to come. So thanks again for breaking that down for us, and I hope you have a good rest of your vacation. And also, I hope you get to watch some of that that Celtics uh, series that seems to be going so well. <laughs> had to <laughs> I get that I, in there. I
1: thought I'd hear about that from you. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you,
0: Doug. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.